magician's niece presents Sinisterhood by Helena Marie Chandler. Music by Adrian Romero. Chapter 24. The Dodo. There must be a reason for people marrying, Dawn thought. She would never be able to get married, of course. Not with her condition. But she had to say that she didn't really mind because all the marriages she'd ever seen had only ever ended up in disaster. Look at Auntie Kira and Uncle Nigel. They were both nice people. They didn't argue and they seemed to get along, and yet they still ended up divorcing. Nigel was a lovely man and he was always friendly. Kira did once say, though, that he was a bit untrustworthy because he was a good actor and that he was a show-off and only cared about what other people thought. That's why Dawn called him a peacock. Not to be nasty about Nigel, because Dawn really did love him, but because he liked to strut about and he liked to look handsome and he always wore bright clothes in purple and green and blue and pink, just like a peacock's feathers. Nigel was a very nice person. He must have done something very naughty to Auntie Kira because she ended up kicking him out of the house. Nigel was a good egg, but after him came that horrid man called Derek. He was like a prickly character out of the books Dawn loved by the author Roald Dahl. He was a lazy man with a spiky beard and a big red face that was all puffy and fat. Everybody said that he used to be handsome, but Dawn knew that you could only ever be pretty if you were nice inside as well. Dawn had tried to be friendly with him on many occasions when he was still with Auntie Kira, but he was never friendly to Dawn in return. She noticed that Derek could never look her in the eye. He never wanted Auntie Kira to take Dawn out when he was still living in the Wimbledon house. It was as if he was embarrassed to be with her. Dawn remembered one time a few years ago having a conversation with Auntie Kira when she said that Derek had taken all her money and given it to his own children instead. One of them had got a car, another one got a gap year to Australia, and another one got money to start up a business in computers. That's why Dawn called him the cuckoo. Dawn did love cuckoos. At least she loved the sound that cuckoos made as they signalled the first hint of spring. Dawn spent hours last year watching a cuckoo through her binoculars in the woods at the edge of the gardens. Dawn loved the sound they made, but she hated what they did to other mothers. People, Dawn realised, just didn't understand how clever and nasty the cuckoo was. They were brilliantly nasty, shockingly nasty, and they always got away with their crimes. Because cuckoos, Dawn learned, they used other people's families to bring up their own children. From her observations, Dawn knew that cuckoos flew about looking for another mother bird who had babies. And then, when they found one, they would lay their own eggs in the other mother's nest, throwing out an unhatched chick just to make space for their own one, and then they'd trick the mother into thinking it was hers. It was obvious to the human eye that this was a horrible thing to do, but it wasn't obvious to the poor parent birds. They had no idea what was going on. Mother Cuckoo would stake out an already built nest, a thriving home to several eggs. She'd wait until the mother and father bird had left to find food, 
because feeding several chicks required both mummy and daddy to be constantly out foraging. And they had to forage for twigs and feathers too, to make sure their house was big and safe. When the nest was unguarded, she'd zoom in and she'd push out an egg, and she'd lay her own egg in its place and it was impossible to tell the difference. The cuckoo's egg and the other eggs were exactly the same in size, in colour and in texture. But when the eggs hatched, it was the cuckoo chick that screeched the loudest of them all. Desperate in their quest to make their little children thrive, the parents would feed and feed and feed the cuckoo because it sounded so sad and hungry. And then it would grow, and it would grow and grow, bigger and bigger and bigger than all the other baby birds. It would take over the entire family, take all their belongings and keep them all for itself. It was scary to see the size of the baby cuckoo. It became even bigger than the mummy bird and the daddy bird. Its size, thought Dawn, showed just how monstrous and greedy it was. It showed just how horrid the cuckoo mother had been in destroying the rival family. Oh yes, thought Dawn, Derek really was just like the cuckoo. He was greedy and selfish, and he was sly and sneaking in. Dawn, therefore, found herself very confused as to why Kira had agreed to marry him just as she was very confused as to why her own daddy had decided to marry her mum. Dawn didn't think it could be love, not how she understood love anyway, but she had no idea as to what the other reason could possibly be. Maybe people just felt bored and lonely living all on their own, but maybe there was something else in it. Dawn wondered if there was some special gift you got when you got married, something bigger. Something more than the exchange of rings and a big party in a church. She wondered if her mum had got anything special out of marrying her daddy. Maybe she got something special too when her lovely daddy fell ill. It was this thought about her mother getting something special when her daddy fell down that drove Dawn to do more investigating in the library. She found a book when she was last there with Etta about gardening because she couldn't stop thinking about that purple plant that Mummy had said would kill a dodo. Dawn could easily remember what the purple plant looked like. It was so pretty and its colours were so bright. She tried to find a picture in the book. It said the plant was called Nightshade. It was a deadly nightshade. Dawn found two whole pages about the killer plant in the book. So pretty. Dawn kept thinking, but really it was so very nasty. People were like plants. You couldn't always tell what they were like just from the way they looked on the outside. Sometimes people who seemed nice were in fact the most horrible of all. A bit like those tricky cuckoos. Dawn didn't understand most of what was written about the purple nightshade in the gardening book, but there was one interesting section that she saw. It talked about the olden days, It said that the plant was sometimes used to speed up the inheritance. Dawn didn't know what speed up the inheritance meant, but she wanted to find out. She made a note of the words and decided she was going to ask Dr Jones to explain them to her in her next session at the end of the week. Dawn had been thinking a lot about what nice things her mum could get because of doing nasty stuff to her daddy and auntie Kira. She knew, for example, that her mummy loved going on lots of holidays. Did she get to go on lots more holidays when Daddy went away? Maybe he didn't let her go on enough holidays and she wanted him to stop standing in her way. 
Maybe she would get to go on more holidays now that Auntie Kira had gone too. Maybe the holidays were the big prize she got for doing all those nasty things. Dawn knew her mother well enough, of course, to know that she could have done horrid things to her sister and her husband just out of sheer badness. But she was also a bit of a cuckoo herself, quite selfish and greedy if there was anything around to be had. She always liked to get her hands on things if she could have them, and to keep everything available for herself. Dawn thought hard. What did Mummy get to keep when Daddy fell down, when he got ill and had to go to the hospital? She decided to write a list. Her mother had kept the cars and the pets and the garden with the birds. She kept that big house too, even though she was all on her own and the house was bigger than the one Dawn lived in with all her friends at Lowton's and with Mrs. Wade as well. Maybe Mummy got to keep Kira's cars, and her pets, and the garden with the birds, and the big house as well. It was a lovely house, it was close to the common, and to the shops, and you could get into central London very easily. And it was very close to the school, which was a nice place too. Dawn found that she was having all these ideas. There were too many ideas, and they kept keeping her awake at night. She knew Etta would just keep telling her off for thinking about all these things, about the problems in her family. Etta kept saying that the hassle wasn't worth the bother. She should know, of course, because her own family was so very weird. But Dawn needed to talk it through. She decided she would announce her thoughts, along with her question about inheritance, to Dr Jones during her next session. The only problem was that Dr. Jones had been saying nice things about her mother, things she'd never said before. Dawn was afraid they were friends now and that they were speaking to each other about her on the phone. She decided she would just have to try not to mention her horrible mother by name. was growing up in his native Norfolk. He'd always been called a useless article. The name made him chuckle. He couldn't deny that he didn't merit the moniker. He couldn't say that he was embarrassed or ashamed. Leisureliness was just in his nature. God should have made him a sloth, he thought. He would have been quite content in the jungle, catching a kip on the branch of a tree. In any case, life was for living, and he couldn't be blamed for living it just the way he liked it. Derek had many ideas about life. It wasn't surprising. He had much time to reflect upon it as he laid for many hours in his bed or on the sofa or in the garden on his deck chair. He flattered himself that he saw through this silly system that everyone else seemed to subject themselves to, the hamster wheel on which they all condemned themselves to run. Who the hell were they trying to impress, he always thought. He was quite impressed with himself. Yes, the unemployed life was much the better one, and more fool he who insisted on sweating and bleeding on someone else's behalf. The secret to life, as Derek understood it, 
was finding a rich partner and hunkering down. He didn't feel slighted, therefore, when the family farm was handed to his brother, the second oldest son. The prospect of five decades' physical work with only a buxom farmer's wife for company was quite off-putting. He'd rather a wealthy, elegant London divorcee and a life of lazy lunches lounging in strolls along the Thames. Derek didn't consider himself an empty vessel. He had his fair share of gifts. Conversation, companionship, he was a bringer of happiness, a coaxer of fun. In any case, his contribution to life was much more ethereal, metaphysical, one might say, because he was a proselytizer, a prophet, a spreader of the good news of what one's life could actually be. Everyone, he thought, should just follow his example, follow his example and simply calm down. After all, what was the point of burdening oneself with work and responsibilities when there was fun to be had and ample resources to fund it? Derek even had scientific backing to support his ideas. He'd earned a good grade in O-level physics and flattered himself that the knowledge he'd acquired had provided him with an excellent understanding of the true workings of the world. All good physicists knew, for example, of the first law of thermodynamics the law of the conservation of energy. With a finite pot of energy in the universe, what was the point of wasting it? No point in shortening one's life in exchange for a pittance and a bad back from sitting staring at a computer screen. Derek didn't feel guilt, therefore, when wooing Kira Dunleavy of not informing the woman that he had no intention to make any financial contributions to their partnership at all. It was she, after all, who was the desperate one. Desperate, apparently, to have a man on her arm and a ring on her finger. Of course, Derek had purposely positioned himself in the sights of this lonely schoolteacher, approaching the end of her eligible days. And indeed, he knew well her type and how to present himself. That, in his experience, all women want, particularly those who choose to look after children for a living, is to be fathered. Fathered and protected, just as she chose to mother those kids. Derek could play that role rather nicely. He was tall, and he was handsome, and he looked quite grown up for his age. Whatever Derek did, however, he most certainly didn't take advantage of her. Kira was a martyr. She couldn't seem to prevent herself from service and doing good deeds. Pretty obvious given her choice of profession, Derek supposed, looking after all those unfortunate children. It wasn't Derek's fault that she was too generous, far too nice. And in any case, she loved her work. She was a professional woman and he wasn't going to stand in her way. Anyway, she had plenty of money. She still had lots of it when she took Derek on. Kira came from a wealthy Northern Irish family. She had a huge house and a rich ex-husband. She wasn't a woman in need of food and shelter. She was a woman in need of a man. Derek didn't feel guilty either, therefore, when he announced to his boss that he was leaving his sales job just a month after the announcement of their wedding. Even with the cessation of his own income, there was plenty of money to go around. Plenty for cars for his grown-up children, plenty for model aeroplanes and motorboats, plenty for Kitty's gap year, for George's trips to the Far East, plenty too for Robert's marriage and their two-week honeymoon in the south of France. Derek also didn't blame himself for the catastrophe the marriage eventually became, because it was only ever Kira who changed in their time together. He remained just the same as he ever was, the same as the very first day. 
By the final year of their marriage, Kira had learned, she said, to finally stand up for herself. She began driving Derek to distraction with irritating phrases like, this mouse has learnt to bite back and I just can't afford your nonsense anymore. But she could afford it, and he would often tell her so. If she loved him as much as he loved her, she'd just sell that whopper of a house. It was excessive for the two of them, far too big, too expensive to run. It was obvious that money wasn't the real issue in their partnership. She just didn't love him anymore. All in all, though, Derek didn't feel too embittered by the divorce. He'd got a good number of years of bed and board out of Kira before the degree Nicey finally came through. And, well, that £67,000 payoff he'd been granted hadn't gone too unwelcomed. He'd never known that men could also be the offended party and awarded justly with fantastically large rewards. He knew that one occasion when he put up a set of bookshelves would serve him well in the end, as well as the time she'd punched him in the face and wouldn't stop calling him a monster. Derek considered those years with Kira a growth experience, a useful essay before taking on another, this time more docile wife. As docile as Kira had been when he met her in the very beginning. This time, however, he resolved to choose a widow, a woman without children, a woman who didn't work, and a woman whose dear departed husband had thoroughly feathered the nest. But he never did find that widow. It was therefore that he felt a glint of glee when a Wimbledon acquaintance announced Kira's demise to him at a summer barbecue. Derek, of course, wasn't shocked by the news that the woman had taken her own life. He'd found her quite unstable, quite miserable and loathsome in the end. No, what drew Derek's attention to the affair was that big Victorian house that he and Kira had once lived in together. Who was to inherit the five-bedroom pile? It was first thing the next morning, therefore, that Derek phoned up the solicitor, determined to state just what, after so many years' investment, were his rights in relation to the home. Chapter 26. The Owl. Lowton School for Children with Learning Difficulties. Wimbledon, SW19. Friday the 2nd of August, 1985. Dear Victoria, As discussed in our phone call last week, I write to keep you up to date with Dawn's latest progress. During our two sessions this week, Dawn has appeared outwardly upbeat and is enjoying the summer holidays. She seems, superficially at least, to be coping with her bereavement. Nonetheless, Dawn is showing signs of irrationality regarding the disappearance of her aunt. She has been making thinly veiled accusations towards a mythical person whom she feels is a murderer, responsible for her auntie Kira's death. Though this might seem of concern, it is not to be unexpected in someone of her age and condition. This fantasising may simply be Dawn's way of dealing with the shock of the loss. Perhaps this unnamed individual is a personification of the injustice Dawn feels. She may even be experiencing a deep sense of anger at her aunt for taking her own life. She may be seeing her aunt as a murderer, a person who murdered herself. Dawn, I think, feels very let down by her aunt on a deep, unconscious level. 
It is fantastic, therefore, for Dawn that she has you to step in where Ms Dunleavy had previously acted as guardian. Dawn did ask me, however, a strange question this week. What a person gets when another person dies. Perhaps this is something to do with Ms Dunleavy's will and something you might look into on Dawn's behalf. If you have any questions or concerns, please do ring my secretary and arrange an appointment via telephone. Yours sincerely, Dr. Sophia Jones, MD, MA, FRC Psych. She's never bothered to phone me up before. Now, Dr. Jones tells me you're interested in finding out what you'll get from Auntie Kira. Dawn was flustered by the directness of her mother's statement. What does she mean, get from Auntie Kira? Dawn began to wonder. I don't want anything from Auntie Kira, she said. I just want Auntie Kira back. I mean, Dawn, what you'll be getting in her will. What's a will? It's when you're told what you're going to get when somebody dies. But Auntie Kira's not dead. She's coming back. She's just lost. Oh, Dawn, she's not coming back. How do you know that? You went on the cruise. Why did you send her on a cruise? She hates cruises. None of this would have ever happened if you hadn't sent her on the cruise. Dawn breathed deeply for a moment. She almost felt sick with how angry she was. She could hear her mother's breath getting quicker. It sounded like she was going to shout, but then she coughed and she breathed and she changed her tone to something sweeter. There, there, little Dawn, don't get upset and you don't need to be angry with Auntie Kira because it wasn't really her fault. Dawn was getting more and more confused, but she found it in a strength. I'm not angry with Auntie Kira, Mummy, I'm angry with you. Now, Dawn, and I never asked anyone what I was getting if Kira didn't come back. Why would I want any presents if she died? Victoria gave a sharp response in return. Yes, my dear, you did ask. I have it on very good authority that you were trying to work out what a person gets when another person dies. Dawn was frozen, with an unsettling sense of fear. 
she realised that she had, indeed, asked that very question. But the way her mother was saying it wasn't at all what she had meant. She had asked the question to Dr Jones, but she was only trying to work out why Kira had disappeared. And she wasn't asking about what she could get out of a murder, she was asking what a person would get, and by a person she meant her mother. Dawn felt trapped and betrayed. She felt she was being spied on. How did her mother hear her conversation with Dr Jones? Was she listening to her? Did she have a microphone? Surely she couldn't be listening when she was all the way over in Northern Ireland. Hello? Dawn? Can you hear me? Are you talking to Dr Jones? Dawn replied. So what if I am? I'm paying for all of this. I've got a right to ask. Auntie Kira was always in charge of talking to Dr Jones. You never know, she might come back and then she'll be really angry. Dawn heard her mother breathe deeply again. She gave a long and heavy sigh. But it wasn't a sympathetic sigh. It was an angry sigh. A sigh of frustration. Look, Dawn, you might find this hard to understand, but I can tell you now that your aunt is never coming back. How can you be so sure? They never found her body. I am sure, Dawn. I am absolutely sure. Sure because you did it? Dawn couldn't believe how brave she was starting to become. She hadn't meant to say those things. The words had slipped right out of her mouth. I want you to know, my dear, that if you talk about me to Dr Jones ever again, I will be very, very cross. And I'm sure, little Dawn, you'll certainly come to regret it. She had told Dawn to just lay off her mummy once and for all. No good ever comes from stirring up the family cauldron, she said, because if you've got a family of witches, everything just goes terribly wrong. The poison just gets stronger and stronger over the years, and then horrid things begin to happen. Etta decided to take Dawn up to her bedroom. She sat Dawn down on her window seat the one where the once brown cushions had turned green, coloured by the fingertips of the bright, bright sunshine. I don't know if you remember, Dawn, but you told me once about what happens when your mummy gets angry. Remember that time when you went home for a week? You must have been six or seven. When I was in the bath and Angela was looking after me. Etta couldn't remember the name of the lady. 
but she did remember that the story involved Dawn having a bath, and that there was a lady helping Dawn have a bath, and she was helping Victoria too, because Victoria was putting on one of her silly coffee mornings. Remember, Dawn, you said there was a huge row over the cakes. She hadn't made the right cakes or something silly like that, and then your mum started throwing things, and the lady had to lock you both inside the bathroom so you wouldn't get hurt. Dawn said she did remember it. She admitted that she was afraid of her mother, and of all the things she might do. She began to worry, she told Etta, that it was now a bit too late. She said she was angry with herself, angry for having prodded the tiger. Nothing good ever happened when her mother got angry, she knew that. I never go home to my grandparents' house, said Etta, even though it's like a magic castle. Everyone is so upset about what happened in the past, what my daddy did because he was naughty and he let the family down. I don't even remember my mother and she's not allowed to see me anyway. You've got your granny though, said Dawn, and she's nice. Well, I'm nice, Hen, and you've got me. were wasted on such a two-dimensional thinker as her child. Dawn was angry with her auntie for letting her down. The murderer was a personification of all the injustices that she felt. Please, thought Victoria, what utter nonsense, mumbo-jumbo. No wonder the feeds were so expensive at that ruddy financial sinkhole of a school. In Victoria's ample life experience, Experts were merely people who'd come to mine a useless niche, and the more complicated and elaborate the ruminations that they proffered, the more the average cretin was expected to pay. Victoria knew too that when her daughter asked Dr Jones what a person gets, she meant, quite clearly, what will Victoria get? This was very much a case of nature rather than nurture. They had spent so many years apart and yet it was clear that little Dawn had inherited her mother's sixth sense, that knack of just knowing what was going on behind other people's eyes. The girl might have had Down syndrome, but my God, Dawn wasn't as stupid as she'd have everybody around her believe. Victoria laughed inwardly, a vile and rattling laugh. All that time she'd spent conceiving of the ultimate plan and the only person not to be fooled by its perfection was her own disabled daughter, a girl with what they called a very low IQ. Ha! The irony of it all. She'd been so very flustered by Beth and her silly remarks. She'd been flustered too by Daphne Featherstone and her neighbour's prying eyes. But the only one she'd had to worry about was her own silly daughter. It seemed that, in her grown-up years, the girl wasn't such a dodo anymore. But she might just have to go the way of the long, dead dodo. Victoria decided that it was necessary that her efforts be redoubled. 
She began to practice her obsequious tones in front of the mirror. She brainstormed the manner in which she could ensure that Dr. Jones would be flattered and utterly used. It's women like you paving the way for future generations of girls. I'm so glad I have such a trusted professional to support me and my daughter at this challenging time. You have great insight into the workings of the female adolescent mind. Women, like you, are so much more in tune with life's troubles, many of them inflicted by men. I really feel, Dr. Jones, that I can truly trust you. If Dr. Jones ever pried too much as to why Victoria had never visited her daughter in the past, she had her response well prepared. It was so hard to gift my daughter to Kira, but my sister had so deeply wanted a child. They were each so very good for one another, you see. She was a trained professional. It was hard for me, but I had to be selfless, and I didn't want to stand in their way. If only you knew, Dr. Jones, how difficult it was for me to send my only child away so young. Victoria practiced this speech several times over. She was ready for any unexpected communication, any awkward questions or turn of conversation. It seemed to Victoria that Dawn, however, was not to be swayed by flattery. It appeared that the simple mind was much, much harder to dupe. Indeed, it seemed a more direct and material approach was necessary. Presents, she thought, she'd send them in the post. Ones to fob off that prying friend Etta Deauville too. Nice pink scarves, matching for the pair of them. Little earrings and trinkets. Tickets for them and all the girls in the house, Mrs Wade included, to a matinee of their favourite West End show. Top priority for Victoria, however, was to make and post a homemade